we love you. We love your word. Thank you for giving it to us in so many ways, from historical narrative to prophetic utterances to the, to the, to the wonderful poetic books, to those books that have the apocryphal uh, or, or, or the, uh, the, the imagery of, of the fantastic, what, whatever genre of literature you used, it's always amazing for us to go there and learn. And so, Father, we thank you. We ask now that you'd enlighten us, illumine our minds, that we might indeed grow. And we ask you to do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. In the, uh, the movie, The Avengers, uh, 2012, I think, uh, is when it came out. It's one of those Marvel movies. And uh, I've, I've said this in a sermon a few months ago, after having uh, seen it for the second time or whatever, that uh, one of my favorite lines in a recent movie appears. In fact, there's two lines in that movie that appears. The, the one is is as low key, who I'm going to speak of here, is all dressed up. He's got one of these fantastic horns, helmet thing, and and one of the superheroes, one of the one of the good guys in the movie, uh, when he learns from Loki that Loki is a god, he says, "I'm pretty sure God doesn't dress like that." The other great line in the movie comes in the scene when Loki, who is come down, he's an enemy of Asgard, he's come down to earth though, and uh, Thor, his, his, his adopted brother, is already at war here on earth with all the good guys fighting evil, and Loki comes to cause problems. And uh, there's this great scene where uh, the Hulk comes jumping into the scene in a building, and Loki with all the pride of mankind, stands up and says, Enough! You are all of you beneath me. I'm a god, you dull creature. I'll not be bullied like that. And the Hulk turns his head for a moment, then grabs him by the one leg and just does the Popeye thing, you know, back and forth, crushing him through the concrete, and then leaving him there moaning in the dust. He can't even speak. And then as the Hulk walks away, he says, hmm, puny God. And that, that's, that's really, uh, not, to, not to trivialize or make too, too much uh, smiling fun about, the, but that's, that's a good deal of what Psalm 82 is about, is God looking at man pretending to be gods and saying, puny gods. And to think, I put you in your position and then you would rise up against me this way. And that's largely what this psalm is about. Sometimes the rulers of this world who are referred to as gods and judges, as they are here, um, Sometimes they assume to themselves greater importance than they actually possess. And, you know, 
we all do that, don't we? That's the reason for the warnings in the scriptures not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. But it, it seems, you know, that, that idea of, you know, if someone has power, they get a little more power, and then that goes to their head, and they think they have absolute power. Uh, and there, there is something of an, uh, you know, a track there that pe people follow, and particularly men who are placed in, in lofty leadership roles. And we've had some in history, haven't we, who, who act like God, acting as though and perhaps thinking in their own pitiful minds that they have power and knowledge beyond their own human ability. You study the life of, of Hitler, there's something of that going on there. When you look at some of the more recent uh, leaders in history, you, you, you can't help but wonder if that's not what's happening there. They come to think and they come to act as, as an all-sufficient being. And uh, when this happens, uh, nations always suffer. And people, individuals as well as nations, suffer. Uh, Derek Kidner entitles this, his, his commentary on this chapter as The God's Own Trial. And I've adjusted that just a bit so we know who exactly is in view here. And it seems to be the kings of the earth, the leaders of this world. This is what uh, Kidner says, With its bold, dramatic form, this judgment scene brings some clarity to a confused human situation. It takes us in a few words behind and beyond our present wrongs to portray God's unbounded jurisdiction, His delegation of power, His diagnosis of our condition, and His drastic intentions. That's a good summary. That, that's a good outline for the chapter, but. Hopefully, uh, I'll give you a little outline that's easier for you to jot down and easier for you to remember. The first thing we see here in this text is, is just the scene. Verses 1 and 2, 3 overlapping into the next little section, but the scene. And the scene's the court of heaven. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And so we see an, an assembly or a council. Uh, assembly seems a little better than council here. The gods are, as it were, gathered in the presence of God. In, in the presence of the true God. The only God. Now, back to this God's thing. We'll see it in a few moments. But just to remind you as you think through this, uh, Jesus refers the people in his time as he's arguing his case that he is the son of the one true God. And he says, why do you have such a hard time thinking about men in terms of God, lower case, G-O-D? God calls men of the past gods and judges. So why is this hard for you to comprehend? He's really taking the task over their failure to remember history, uh, but also to understand that that. God places men in leadership positions. And as such, they rule for him as, as his. And we're going to see that here in a moment as well. And so this is the imagery. Kidner reminds us that uh, here in the construct of the Hebrew, this is, this is a continuous 
assessment. God, it, it reads as a moment in time. That's the way we read it in English. And it, it, uh, it reads, it's, it's sort of a snapshot, but the snapshot is to remind us this is the way it always is. God is always on His throne, and leaders of this world are always quorum Deo. They're always in His presence, whether they acknowledge it, whether they admit it, whether they like it or not. They, they, all, they exist, they have their being, they rule and they reign in His presence. They can't get away from it. Just as you and I live quorum Deo, we live in His presence. We live in the face of God. And we don't always act like it. But we do. And if we pondered that, it would perhaps change the way we live, as with the kings of the earth. These men rise, they serve, and they fall in the presence of God. And then notice, after verse 2, the question, how long will you judge unjustly? This is God speaking to them here in the context, and that moves us on to the second point. But I want to notice this before we go to the second point. We see the scene. It's God over all things. All leaders are are responsible to Him. All leaders have their being, their movement in, in His presence. Uh, and then it, it's, uh, it, it raises this question, how long will you, speaking to the, the little gods, the leaders, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then we have this break, this pause. If, if scholarship's right over the last many hundred years, Selah is a pause. I, regardless of whether you're dealing with this musically or you're dealing with it in reading, it's a pause. You're to stop. This is, this, is a, this is an opportunity to reflect upon what's being said, and God's asking them some serious questions. Uh, in my presence, quorum Deo, before my face, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? It's intended them for them to sit and ponder this for a while. Is this really who we are? Do we really judge unjustly? Do we really rule over the uh, and, and show uh, partiality to the wicked? Are we really calling good evil and evil good? And so, from that scene, that's the that's the scene that we're to have in our mind. We move to the sentence. Starting in verse 3, following out of those questions, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. So here is the sentence. And the sentence comes right there at the end in verse 7. Like men you shall die. You will fall like any prince. None of you are better than one another. You'll all have the same end. And so the sentence is that very, this is the end. It's, it's just like the writer to the Hebrews says. Uh, there is indeed appointed for man a time to die. And after this, the judgment. And you need to rule and you need to reign 
You need to live, you need to talk, you need to walk like that is true. We need to live in the presence of that fact. We're going to die. And children, you are, you are, it's the hardest for you because you're young and you're healthy and hopefully you eat healthfully. Hopefully your mom and dad prepare good things for you, make your body strong. And you just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm gonna live forever. I, you know, and the fact is, is that whether in young age or in middle age or at the end of a nice full age, unless the Lord comes first, you will die just like the rest of us. I was thinking this morning when I saw Robert sitting back there, I miss Marge. And I'm sure many of you who, uh, I think of Mark sitting here, he served with Hank, her husband, as an elder of this church, and then seeing Marge after Hank's death. And, you know, even if you live to be as old as Marge, and that was a long time, you're still going to die. And so we keep this, this in our minds at all times, and it, it affects us. It should, it should have an impact upon us as we walk and have our being that, you know, you're going to die. And, and, and you know, the, great, the great line of, of the Puritan, William Perkins, you die well, you must live well. So we want to live well. We don't want to live like these gods who oppressed the, 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 the poor and the needy, who exalted the wicked, who kept company with the wicked and, and, and didn't keep company with, with the righteous. And so the sentence is that they're going to fall like every other man. There's no difference. The sentence follows the indictment. The indictment is there in, in verses 2 and following. Uh, it starts there in 2 with the question, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then it's stated in the positive. Here's, here's what you're supposed to be doing. You're to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. You're not doing that. You're to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. You're not doing that. You're to rescue the weak and the needy. You're not doing that. You're to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You're not doing that. So he's speaking to the, to the civil magistrates, the leaders of this world. This is what your role is. You're to do good. You're to see to it that others can do good. And you're to punish evil. You possess the sword, civil magistrates, so you can be sure good is done and evil is punished. You're not doing that. That's the indictment. And, and, and then we come to verse 5. And now this is taken a couple of different ways. Uh, Kidner takes it as a description of the plight of the oppressed. Uh, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundation of their... So, in other words, because... The gods of this world, the kings of this earth, the leaders of the governments of this world oppress 
the poor and the needy and exalt the wicked because they don't give justice to the weak and fatherless. They don't maintain the right of the afflicted. They don't rescue the weak and the needy. The people live in this state. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, the other view is that this is, this is a statement about the gods themselves. They live in their own little world. They don't really get it. And so they neither have knowledge nor understanding. They're the ones who walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken because of how they live. Now, rather than get into, well, which is it? Because I don't know. I think both of those are possible. And but those are the two likely meanings of this verse. But the point is, this is part of the indictment. He's building a case. And whether this is the effect that their wickedness has had on the people, or this is a description of them as they serve the people. It's still part of the indictment. This is wrong. This is bad. And so, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any other prince. And then notice this. God says, I said you're God's. This is part of the indictment. I'm the one who placed you in your position. I just as I spoke and there was the there was there was everything. There was the sun, the moon, the stars. I said you'll be God's. I, I determine who rises and who falls. I determine who will sit on a throne or not sit on a throne. I'm the one who said this. I'm the sovereign God. Back to the council room in verse 1. God's taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And he's the one that passes sentence on them. And so he brings them back to that, that point of sobriety. I'm the one who said this. I'm the one who said you're God's. I'm the one who makes you different from any other prince by placing you in the place I put you. And that's true of all of us too, by the way. We are where we are because of God. Some of you can, can relate. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed. When you meet people and you hear their story, you hear their pilgrimage, and then you say, wow, I would have thought he was, I would have thought he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth to have achieved all that he's achieved. You know? Or you meet someone that's destitute and you hear their story and you think, wow, really? You were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Children, if you don't know what that, that is, ask your parents. That's a, that's a common little way of saying something. I thought they were born 
a privilege of, 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 of place in society. And look at them. They're in the rescue mission. And you begin to realize that God's the one who's sovereign. God's the one who puts people. And so he reminds them of this. You are my, my servants. You're doing my bidding. You're carrying out my work. That's why you're recognized as gods or judges because I gave it to you. And here you are misrepresenting me because I don't rule this way. I rule justly. I care for the fatherless. I care for the oppressed. And isn't that what we read both in the prophets and we read in the book of James that this is real religion. That good is done toward the needy. And justice is meted out to the wicked. That's, that's, that's true, unadulterated religion. And so, by the way, we, we, we know this truth from other places. There, there are wonderful places in the scriptures that tell us this same fact that everyone's where he is because God put him there. Listen, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You're the head of the gold. Here's then Daniel. Clearly, again, this idea that God's the one who puts men in, in places to lead. And that's why the responsibility for men who lead, and it doesn't matter whether you're, you're leading a, a group in your workplace or leading a, a church as elders and deacons, you have a great responsibility to serve as God would serve the people and no other way. And then it ends with this great salvo. So you had this, the scene, the sentence, and the salvo. From the scene, the explanation of the problem, we move finally to God's uh, sentence, and then to his great outburst here at the end, his great declaration, if you will. Now, this is the condition of the world. Men who rule amiss, who deserve God's judgment, who lead the people in such a way as to shake the foundation of the earth. And the remedy is, arise, O God, judge the earth. Now we're back to the writer, Asaph. He's been describing it all to us, and now he cries out on behalf of the church, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. They're his. That's why God, by the way, cares how rulers rule is because it's his. He cares greatly how the people are treated, how justice is carried out or not carried out because it's his. He made it. He put it here. It's his. And one day, it'll all be his again. Listen to what what we read in 1 Corinthians, for as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he, the antecedent to he is Christ. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, after he's destroyed all the gods who have misruled, after he's destroyed all the principalities and powers, Christ then delivers the kingdom to the Father. It's all the Father's. That's what the psalmist is saying. Arise, God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. There's a sense in which you, we see this last verse as this outburst of the psalmist for just what we know is going to happen. And I think he knew too. But we know it with all the more details now because we have that passage in 1 Corinthians 15. We have the book of Revelation that he will arise, that he will judge. It is all his. And what was his in the beginning will be his in the end. And he'll lose not only none of the elect, as, as we read in John 6, but he'll lose none of created order. He put it here for, for his good reasons, and he'll, he'll bring it to restoration in his good time. So... Practically speaking, this should give us a good deal of a good deal of encouragement when we sit and we we wonder what on earth is going on. What are these world leaders thinking? And when they do bad things, wrong things, or when they do good things, right things, we're reminded, you know what? They sit in the presence of God. God's got this in control. He's ruling and reigning over them. He placed them there. He's the one that gave them their name, president, their name, king, their name, price, uh, their, their name, prime minister. He put them in their positions. He understands this fully. And he's working to the end of it all being reclaimed. So even when things are hard and difficult, and that doesn't change the fact that they may be hard and difficult, right? But because we know this, we can, we can live better and we can live differently in the midst of it. And we can live knowing that King Jesus is still on his throne. So we never forget that God will inherit all the nations. And oh, by the way, as heirs and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus... One of the covenant blessings that the Lord Jesus has bestowed upon the church is this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So we have a lot to look forward to. The best is yet to come. Because God rules. And Jesus is on the throne. And I'm glad I'm not. Aren't you? Because I'm afraid I, I would find myself making a bigger mess of things sometimes. 
but our God rules. Father, we thank you for this wonderful little psalm that encourages us, particularly these days in the midst of a world system that seems in complete chaos at loose ends with leaders who don't seem to know what to do. They don't know what's right. They don't know what's wrong. But we have, we have a great God who has taken his place and will never relinquish it. And we are glad to be called his children. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. So we can